0: Turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah 11, Jeremiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. The Word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant. And speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as at this day. Then I answered, So be it, Lord. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Again, the Lord said to me, A conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of trouble. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest he will set it to fire and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts who planted you, has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time now to you, knowing that we need to hear your word. We need to hear you speak. Lord, do this work that only you can do in our hearts. Cause our ears to hear. And Lord, cause our hearts to be changed. You do this for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, chapter 11 begins the second major section in Jeremiah, and you can see that the shift is to the focus in on the covenant. If you didn't read Jeremiah before you came today, you probably picked up something like that just from our order of worship. There are a few things in there about the covenant. And I'm always struck by the fact of how the Lord providentially works through the planning and the working of all of these things. There are some things that I read through and I see them. Amanda does a tremendous job in laying out the order of worship. But there's some things that it's not until we're here in worship that they really strike me like, that's perfect. That's exactly what needs to, it just dovetails right in to what we're considering today. So this section is going to focus on the covenant, but we're taking a smaller section to make sure that we have this foundation right, because I think this is really important for our understanding not only of Jeremiah, uh, but really all of Scripture, that we really get what the covenant is about, because we use that word and and so forth, but you may think, "Eh, could I define it? If somebody asked me a trivia question, could I outline it? Could I explain it? And maybe you can't, so I want to take time today to consider the importance of the covenant. Now, in this section, uh, you may have heard of the confessions of Jeremiah, kind of like the confessions of Augustine or or whatever, and that's in this section. We're going to get to that, not today. Uh, but as we will see, these are more protests. It seems as Jeremiah is a little more vocal in this, uh, in this section, and for this and other reasons, most believe that this is at a later time in the ministry of Jeremiah. So we're, uh, I believe we're fast-forwarding some. We'll talk about that. Uh, in a little bit. But before we get to the protests, I want to look at the foundation of covenant and the importance of this. To be reformed is to be covenantal, which is why you you may know that you, you people will say that I'm reformed and covenantal. And people that typically use both words together, they're doing that to distinguish themselves from those who might just see themselves as reformed only in their soteriology, that is only in the doctrines of grace, their understanding of salvation, that God is sovereign in salvation. We call this the five points of Calvinism or the doctrines of grace. But being reformed theologically involves much more than understanding that God is sovereign in salvation. The reason that we emphasize this, or I should say a reason that we emphasize this, is that the covenant is like a thread that runs all the way through Scripture. We saw it in the confession this morning as we considered Adam and Eve, that a covenant was made by God with them, when he placed them in the garden. And even though the word covenant is not used in Scripture, it's clear that all the aspects or all the parts are there. You only have to look and see that it's clearly a covenantal relationship. And then we've, we've looked at Genesis, right? For those who were with us back then, we've looked at Revelation. Uh, and we see the covenant there that God constantly finishes. He completes what he starts as we looked to the end. This is who God is. He is the covenant-keeping God. And covenant is how he relates to his people. I mentioned our study in Genesis, and I know we've already read it in the, in the confession, but we have to start there. This was the covenant of works. And again, although the language, the word covenant is not used there, we see all of the aspects of this. God places them in the garden. God is the establisher of the covenant. God gives them instruction. He gives them one prohibition. That's what we read about this morning. The one thing he said not to do, they broke that. But there was other instruction as well. They were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to tend to the garden. And there was implied in this the language of covenant. I will be your God. You will be my people. And had they not sinned, it would have been perfect, wouldn't it? It would have remained that way. He walked with them in that covenantal relationship every evening. All the aspects of covenant are there. But, of course, we know that they broke that one prohibition. God's plan of redemption was already in place. It wasn't that God looked down and said, Oh, oh no, what have they done? What am I going to do now? They broke it. No. His plan was established before the foundation of the world. The triune God put into place a plan of redemption before time and space were ever created. And in this plan of redemption is this covenant of grace that begins to be revealed here in the garden. God says to, he speaks to Adam, he speaks to Eve, and then he speaks to the serpent in front of Adam and Eve. And he says this, I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Could they have imagined what that would have looked like? And yet we who are on the other side of the cross know exactly what that's pointing to, what exactly that's describing, that indeed Satan did bruise the heel of the Messiah, and yet the Messiah crushed his head in his victory on the cross and resurrection from the dead. So if you think of the covenant as a as an ever-expanding, almost like a flower blooming, this is, it's just in, in, in almost seed form here, right? We don't have a lot of detail. We just know that there's someone coming. He's going to crush the head of this one who tempted Adam and Eve. With the Noahic covenant, it blooms a little bit more. What was the promise of the Noahic covenant? That God would never... What? Judge the world in, uh, in a flood again. He would never destroy nature and creation. Why is that important? Why? Because the promised one would come, born of a woman, as a man. He would send the Redeemer in creation. And so creation needed to be preserved to carry out this plan of redemption. With the Abrahamic covenant, it becomes more explicit. Now we see all the nations of the earth would be blessed through the descendants of Abraham. And for the first time, we see the covenantal language used that we see used here in Jeremiah and throughout Scripture again and again, where God says to Abram, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. To be God to you and to your offspring after you. We're so comfortable with this language that we don't realize how crazy that is. I mean, every other God you go and worship, you have to appease them. But here, the God who made all things, who is holy, says to Abraham, to be God to you. And implied by that, of course, is, and you will be my people. And this is, again, the language that we see. It's used in verse 4 of our passage today, this covenantal relationship language. I will be your God, you will be my people. In the Mosaic Covenant at Sinai, the covenant of grace is codified with the giving of the law. Through it, God reveals his character to his people. He shows them who he is through the moral law and the giving of the law. And he shows them that they cannot save themselves. They can't keep it. They need to look to him to save them. And of course, it shows them how to live the abundant life by obeying him a life that would preserve and protect them in accordance with his law. The covenant of grace becomes clear in the Davidic covenant, where God establishes his kingdom, showing that the kingdom is going to come on earth as it is in heaven. Despite all of the effects of sin and death, a kingdom is coming, and there would be one who would arrive, who would rule on the throne of David forever. And then finally, finally, the flower blooms all the way in the coming of Jesus the Messiah. He establishes the new covenant through his death and resurrection, the covenant that Jeremiah would later prophesy about in Jeremiah 31. And we see from that passage in Jeremiah 31, one that many of us are familiar with, we won't take time to look at it today, and from other passages in Scripture, that this plan of redemption was no plan B. Again, it wasn't God saying, you know, what am I going to do now? This was a plan that was put in place before the foundation of the world. All along, the plan through redemptive history that is being unfolded and being expanded and being revealed is the plan that God had in place from the beginning to redeem a people for himself. Now, we could spend a whole sermon or a series of sermons as to why God did it this way. But I think one of the best explanations is found in Ephesians 1. I won't read the whole section here. I just want to read it in abbreviated form. But listen says in Ephesians 1 that God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. This is all the answers right here. According to his will, for the praise of his glorious grace. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins. It's explained what it's going to look like according to the riches of His grace, there that is again, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to Him, things in heaven and things on earth. His plan all along was to make for Himself a people saved from sin and death to the praise of His glorious grace. To put the glory of His grace on display. Note that there is a mystery of His will. We can't understand it all. We can't comprehend it all. There is mystery left in the gospel that we can't explain. Yet, it is done according to the purpose of His will. There are no mistakes. There are no surprises for God. And yet, the plan was for the fullness of time. In other words, it's going to unroll. There is a reason and there is purpose in every breath that we breathe. His law written on tablets of stone is now written on our hearts and our sins are forgiven by the redemption of his blood. He will unite all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth so that his prayer that he taught us to pray will finally be answered in Christ. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are people of the covenant, redeemed and made his own as sons and daughters. He did this. He established the covenant. He accomplished it. He accomplished our redemption. And He secures it. He will finish what He has begun, a plan for the fullness of time. So this puts all the glory on God. All the glory on God. Why were we created? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This puts Our salvation puts all the glory on Him. Now, we look at the covenant of grace from the other side of the cross. We understand way more, of course, than Adam and Eve did when they heard, crush your head, bruise his heel. Way more than Moses understood or David understood. Certainly more than the people in Jeremiah's time could understand. Why? Because we're on the other side of the cross. But this is the same covenant that is being spoken of to the people of Judah here. And the covenantal foundation that he is expressing here is the reason God would discipline his people, just as he had done with the northern kingdom, who had already been carried off into exile because of their waywardness. If you come at Jeremiah and miss the covenant, then you will be tempted to think that God is vengeful and full of spite. Why would God be so harsh? Why would his people, why would he call in this invading army? Why would God say to his people, don't pray, I won't listen? I mean, this this sounds vengeful and full of spite, unless you understand that this is the language of a covenant father. And you who are parents, or if you think back to your relationship with your dad, or even if you didn't have a good relationship, if you think back to the ideal relationship, part of what growing up is, is being corrected. They were walking on a path to their own destruction. Worshipping false gods, pursuing their self-interest, it would have been the most unloving thing for God to ignore this. For God to pretend that it was no big deal. It was the most loving thing for him to correct them through this discipline, as painful as it would be. So a covenant is essential to understand Jeremiah. I hope that you see that. Now, looking in verse 1. I mentioned that the time was likely later. It's not certain there are those who have different opinions about this. I take the idea that it's later, and I'll mention some of the reasons why, that this was sometime later than Josiah's kingly reign, likely under Jehoiakim's rule. If you think back to Josiah's rule, this was the time when the scroll was discovered. There was reform, there was repentance, And then after Josiah was killed in battle, that reform waned, as it often does when we look back through redemptive history or we think back even to more modern church history. Uh, Part of the reason for this later date is because the scroll that was discovered was likely either the book of Deuteronomy or possibly the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, which would have included Deuteronomy. There's a lot of Deuteronomic language in this passage, actually throughout the book of Jeremiah. So the people of God were familiar with it. It had been rediscovered, they had been retaught it, it had been re-expounded and re-exposited so that they knew what it said. And yet, just like their forefathers before them, they had once again rejected it. We see the language of Deuteronomy in verse 3. Cursed is the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. We don't have time to look at it, but in Deuteronomy 27, we see this language repeated again and again throughout each verse. And at the end of each statement that if you don't keep this law, if you don't obey me, then there are curses. That's the whole nature of the covenant. The people would respond, Amen, which is, so be it. And you see, Jeremiah speaks for the people here, and depending on what translation you have in verse 5, he adds the word, amen, or so be it. Again, depending on your translation, but that's the meaning of the word amen. And so he's, in a sense, representing the people, but he's using this language from Deuteronomy. When God established his covenant, he gave guidance to his people that they might know how to live. And as a good gift received from him, they responded with covenantal affirmation, so be it. Amen. We'll do it. We agree. That's in essence what was being expressed here. Not only is the language similar to Deuteronomy, but we see the redemption of God's people from the fiery furnace, out of Egypt, out of slavery. This is echoed again as proof of God's love for them. He says in essence, don't doubt my love and goodness toward you. I'm the one who rescued you out of the fiery furnace. Remember what I've done. Don't doubt it. Not only was the rescue proof, but he had brought them from slavery into a land flowing with milk and honey. Right? They're on the other side of that promise. They're in the land. They're enjoying the land. That is his goodness lavished upon them in tangible ways. They're in enjoying that at this moment that Jeremiah is speaking to them. The promised land was not a far-off hope. It was a reality to them while they were hearing these words. And yet they had rejected God's covenant and were walking in disobedience. We know that the promised land was just a symbol. It was literal. There was literally a land they went. It was abundant. But what is it today? A land contested. A land that you go and you say, how how is this flowing with milk and honey if you've ever been to Israel? It doesn't look like a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, Yeah, that's because there's a real promised land coming. A promised land that the promised land is pointing to. There waits for every believer... All of us, a land where there is no more tears, no more suffering, a land of perfect fulfillment, what we call heaven. But the people of Judah, they couldn't see this. They couldn't see it. They were sitting in the literal promised land. Does this show you how blind sin makes us, how delusional sin makes us? That we can be sitting in the fruit of the promise, rescued out of slavery in the promised land and still missing it. It makes me think of what are all the things that I'm blind to? What are all the things that I'm lost to? So in verse 6, we hear the Lord's command of Jeremiah to proclaim the message of the covenant again. In other words, this is what we see in Scripture over again. The language of the covenant, the message of the covenant, the word of the covenant, God's word expressed over and over and over again to his people. And this is what he does here again. The covenant is relational. By definition, that's what it is. I'm, I have saved you in love so you should obey me in love. Walk with me in love. I will be your God. You will be my people. One of the beauties of covenant theology is its simplicity and its continuity. We don't have to come up with different system for different times. We see it continually the same all throughout Scripture. One God, one people of God, one way of salvation. The people of God in the Old Testament were not saved by their obedience. Sometimes you hear that, like, that was the old way, and now Jesus has come, and this is the new way. No, salvation has always been by, by faith alone, right? Or through faith alone, by grace alone. It's always, you know, Abraham lived and, 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 and trusted God, and he, he declared him righteous, right? It's always been by faith. This hasn't changed. But faith is active. Faith transforms us. Faith moves us into obedience. There is fruit that we call obedience. And this is often so tricky for us because we often get these out of order. I see this happening, if not on a daily basis when I read articles about things that are happening in the church around the world, including in our own denomination, if not daily, weekly. I mean, this is happening all the time where we get these things out of order. And not to paint a broad, uh, too broad of a brush, but I, I do this in my own life where I get this out of order. I turn God's law into gospel. God's law is not the gospel. As we read in Galatians 3 this morning, the law cannot save. The gospel and the law are different. The gospel is not love your neighbor, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The gospel is not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. The gospel is not do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. What are those things? They're the law. There's summation of the law. The gospel is this. God saves sinners. Period. It's good news. Because the law, as beautiful and good as it is, cannot save us because we can't keep it. So God saves sinners. That's good news. And that's what the gospel is. By faith in Christ alone, we're brought from death into life and new birth. Delivered from sin and death. As a result of the gospel's rebirth in our lives. Now we look at God's law, and it's no longer a burden. But we love it. We delight in it. We can say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I, will, I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Apart from the gospel, those words of the law are heavy, because we can't keep them. The law is good, but it cannot save. And it only becomes our delight because of God's gracious saving work, because of the gospel. We cannot reverse these things into works righteousness, which is what the temptation is. We take good things and we turn them into meritorious things or things that we have to do or things that we tell other people they have to do. They're not necessarily sinful things. They can be good things, but they can't save us. can't reverse these two things. After laying the foundation then in verse 9, we see through the rest of the the section that we're looking at through verse 17, the Lord now speaks to Jeremiah as to how Judah has broken the covenant. He explains this, and it's things that we've seen already, right? It's In many ways, it's the same sermon again and again that Jeremiah delivers. He calls it here a conspiracy in verse 9. Uh, There's some debate over how that word should be translated, but conspiracy or not, it's clear that it was no secret conspiracy. It was a conspiracy happening in broad public. Everybody knew about it because everybody was doing it in public. They'd gone after other gods in their idolatry. They had betrayed true worship of Yahweh. They had walked in disobedience like their fathers before them. And again, we can look in not only Scripture and history recorded there, but we can look through church history and see this pattern We can look in our own lives and see the the temptation to get off track again and again and again. It's what we do. If we do not pursue the covenantal relationship with with our God, we digress. This is one of the, again, it's a tricky thing because we can so easily turn this into some kind of works righteousness. But the covenant doesn't mean we just let go and let God. I hope you don't hear that. Just because God has done it and He accomplishes it, it doesn't mean that we don't work and labor and strive and fight for faith. We're not fighting for meritorious works. We're fighting to trust Christ. We're laboring and striving to live unto him in faith. Again, we can't get these things out of order. Because of their disobedience, the promised curses of the broken covenant are now coming in the form of judgment. We read in verse 11, therefore, therefore always explains, I was reminded this uh, last week that one of the basics of hermeneutics. What's the therefore, therefore? Whenever you see that in Scripture, right, you've just been given an explanation. Therefore, this is why this is going to happen. And So because of what he's just explained, in that he established the covenant, now they've broken it. Therefore, this will happen. And the gods that they have, many as the streets in Judah and Jerusalem... Many as the cities Yahweh promises now to discipline them for this. And these gods, of course, can't save them. We saw that in chapter 10, right? The gods made of wood that they've carved have no power. They're helpless. They, they're dead. They offer no hope. But I think the more discouraging part of the message is the Lord says he won't listen. He tells Jeremiah not to pray for the people. Now, this is the second time that we've seen this exhortation given. And it implies that this was part of Jeremiah's ministry as a prophet, that he prayed for the people. But God tells him here not to because he won't listen. Again, I'll say, if you miss the framework of the covenant, you will read this and think that God is mean-spirited and vindictive. Why wouldn't he listen? Why would he not be willing to hear them? But if you understand the covenant based on God's eternal love, then you can grasp why he would take this step. And if you're a parent, and even if you're not a parent, if you're an aunt or an uncle or if you've ever worked with kids or helped kids or spoken to kids, you can understand this, that there are times where you just have to say, enough, stop, we're not talking. Go time out. You know, it could be the temper tantrum. It could be the rebellious phase in the teenage years. It could be the argument that's not getting anywhere. But there's a time where you just say, hold on. No, we need to, you know, And this in essence is what God is doing. Not mean-spirited, not vindictive, but as a loving, heavenly Father. He's telling them, no, I'm not going to listen. He's demonstrating that He is the one that established the covenant. Not because of who they were. Not because they were good and now they're bad, so He's, I'm not going to be nice to you anymore. This is not how God works. He reminds them uh, through through this proclamation of the covenant why He even chose them in the first place. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. This is why God functions as a loving Heavenly Father. It's because it's who He is. In love, He chose them out of all peoples, and in love, He has chosen us. He establishes people like a fertile olive tree, He calls them, verse 16. One that had produced beautiful fruit, I think alluding probably to the time of Reformation of Josiah. It, it, It wasn't like it had never bloomed or produced fruit. It had. There were periods of time where there was obedience, but now... Now the tree is barren The fruit has fallen off The leaves are gone And God's going to send in the Babylonians like lightning And like lightning they're going to strike the tree And the tree's going to burn And that is his discipline We live in a time of great cultural change We could say cultural decline There is tremendous Fast changing transformations In our nation around us And we think What does Jeremiah have to say to us Well As I caution us regularly, let me remind us, we are not Old Testament Israel. America is not Old Testament Israel. America does not possess the promises that were given to Old Testament Israel. Although, we can recognize that there is prosperity according to God's grace in our country. And other people in other countries can say the same thing, that God's common grace is is there, and we can see the effects of it. And we certainly see the effects of it where people have been preserved from uh, decl- further decline. But we see all of that changing. The promises that God gives his people are for his people. Therefore, it's for the church, the church universal. That is the church, all believers, all around the world, and even throughout time. It is for his people. And this is true both corporately And individually, right? We can look at the promises and see that they are for us and they're also for us. They're for me. These promises apply to me as his child. Therefore, I have more in common with my brothers and sisters in Syria, in China, in Nigeria, in Vietnam, wherever. I have more in common with my brothers and sisters in these places than I do with unbelieving Republicans or Democrats. We gain more valuable input from God's word than we do from Fox News or CNN. We are closer in relation to other believers in America who differ from us in non-spiritual allegiances than we are with unbelievers who cheer for the same football team, play at the same club, or live next door to us. So may we be cautious where we find our identities, where we place our loyalties, and where we invest our energies in this life. We have been bought with a price, We are not our own, but we belong body and soul to our Savior and Lord. Inasmuch as we are children of the covenant, and we have been called out, we've been brought from darkness to light, we are separate from the world, we are only there by God's grace. He didn't choose us because we were lovely, because we were beautiful, because we were smart, because of our accomplishments, because of our potential, because he looked down through time and thought, that will make a good disciple. No. He set his affections upon us while we were his enemies and made us his own. He chose us in grace, according to his everlasting love, to put on display the immeasurable glory of his grace. That means that our humble response and gratefulness to him ought to be a deep desire to see other people enter the kingdom. We ought to care about the lost. Now, Jeremiah's hearers certainly included people who were believers. They trusted God, part of the remnant. We know a remnant was preserved because Jesus came, right? God preserved his remnant to bring the Messiah. We're here. But there were also those who were hostile to God. And the message was continual, repent, repent. Our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers need to know of this hope that is ours, that we can be freed from the guilt of sin and the stain of sin. They need to understand that there is more to this life than just getting by, than just eking out some happiness. We ought to seek ways to live our lives that demonstrate our hope by how we respond to this ever-changing world. Is the world changing? Yes. How we respond to it, what does it communicate? Is our response communicating that we are despairing, that we are worried, that we are filled with constant suspicion, just like they are? Or are we a people of discernment, yes, but who still have hope and joy that transcends our circumstances? Do we have hope and joy that transcends our circumstances? What about what happens tomorrow? Something's going to happen tomorrow. I mean, it's every day we turn on the news and something's happened and we feel like the world has fallen apart. How do we respond? I do believe serious changes are happening, and this will create increasing difficulties for Christians to live out their faith. Faith is no longer seen as positive or even neutral. There is clearly growing hostility being shown in our culture. So we need to remember the words of Jesus. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There's one of those verses... Wise as serpents, innocent as doves. What is that? (laughs) What is that? It's this proverbial saying, and you as you go through life, you may grasp it more and more, but what does it look like? What does it look like? None of us are perfectly wise. None of us are certainly perfectly innocent. But Jesus is. He is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He is our wisdom as the Word made flesh. I can't tell you what's coming tomorrow, and please don't hear me saying the sky is falling like Chicken Little, but also like Bobby McFerrin, don't hear me saying, don't worry, be happy. Okay, there is reason to be concerned. But instead, what I'm saying is we're to walk into sermon and grace by knowing and trusting the Good Shepherd. We have a Good Shepherd. A covenant-installing, covenant-keeping, covenant-fulfilling Good Shepherd. Listen to Him speak in Scripture and love His law by meditating on it. Speak to Him in prayer, casting all your cares upon Him with sure confidence that He cares for you. Walk with Him in faith, putting one foot in front of the other instead of cowering in supposed safety. I'd like to say that one again. Walk with Him in faith, putting one foot in front of the other instead of cowering in supposed safety. We all want to be superstars in the faith. Maybe we all don't. A lot of people do. I'm convinced more and more that faithful plotting is where it's at. Put one foot in front of the other. What's God given you today? Where is, what's He given you to steward? Do it well. Put one foot in front of the other. Trust Him. Faithfully plod along. Look to Him. Look to the Good Shepherd in hope, knowing that He finished the work on the cross and He's promised to return, and hold on to Him. When you're distressed and hurting, when you have questions without answers, when you feel like you're sinking, hold on to Jesus. If you don't hear anything else I say today, hear this. Hold on to Jesus because He's holding on to you. Hold on to Him because He's holding on to you. He established the covenant. He fulfilled the covenant. He keeps the covenant secure, and he will bring it to its fruition. If you are trusting in Christ, then he is your God, and you are his child, and in the end, all will be well. Let's pray. Father, would you, uh, would you help us to, to see this, that you've got us, <laughs> that you established the covenant, and you have made us your own, and that you hold us that we are yours? Would you allow the fruit of that trust and belief and hope and assurance flesh itself out in obedience, living lives pleasing unto you, living lives that show others the hope that is within us, living lives full of a, a, a future and a hope filled with joy instead of just like everybody else? Lord, our temptation is to think that we have to make the covenant complete, that we have to do our part, that we have to cling to you. Would you help us to see that our clinging to you is only because you've got us in the palm of your hand and that nothing and no one can pluck us from your hand? Help us to grasp that. Lord, I pray that if there are unbelievers that are hearing this message today, that they would long and desire to be in covenant relationship with God, having their sins washed away and forgiven, knowing an everlasting love that will never end, that can't be broken, knowing a loving heavenly Father who will never let go and never allow anything in heaven or in earth to separate them from Him. Lord, would you draw people to yourself. As we go from here today, Lord, Would you strengthen us in our faith to know that you are covenant-keeping God. And in the end, all will be well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.